We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. And with us today is Ken Roseborough, who's been called the nation's reporter on all issues surrounding genetically modified foods. He's written extensively about GM foods and the non-GMO trend since 1999. He's the author of Genetically Altered Foods in Your Health and the Organic Food Handbook, both published by Basic Health Publications. He appears in the award-winning documentary film, GMO OMG, and in 2006, Ken received an award of merit from Seed Savers Exchange. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Ken on GMOs and the organic food movement. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be with you, Ben. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Um, from New Jersey, originally. Uh, southern New Jersey, not far from Philadelphia, right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. So not on a farm? No. Uh-uh. Well, so trace a line between your upbringing in New Jersey and where you are now in Iowa. Well, I, um, yeah, like I said, I grew up in New Jersey, went to Rutgers University, which is a state university of New Jersey, and got a degree. And I actually worked on an organic farm in, uh, in Florida, Central Florida, back in the late 1970s and early 80s. So I got my exposure to organic farming back then and uh, saw how hard, hard work it is, uh, how challenging mm-hmm. it can be. I eventually uh, came back to New Jersey, and then I always had a desire to, um, to write. I'd always had a good uh, skill, I think, for writing. And so at one point, probably in my mid-30s, I decided to seek writing as a profession. So there was a uh, program at a college in Iowa offering a master's degree in professional writing. So I, I did that for a year and a half and it really launched my writing career. And then I, I was a freelance writer for about 10 years, doing a lot of business type writing, also marketing writing, um, writing articles for trade magazines. I started to move into that area. I wrote uh, articles for a agricultural industry publication called Grain Journal on a regular basis, writing about grain facilities and grain equipment and things like that. So I got a good basis of knowledge in the. And then also wrote articles for some for a, a seed magazine as well and other um, other magazines. So I was kind of moving into the agricultural area because I was in Iowa. I I decided to stay in Iowa after I graduated um, with a master's degree. And um, so it was kind of natural because where I live is just surrounded by kind of a sea of corn and soybeans. So yeah, so I wrote for these magazines and it was in the late 1990s that genetically engineered crops were starting to appear 
And I actually remember writing an article for a seed magazine about biotechnology. And then I gained some familiarity with genetically engineered crops. And there was a, uh, a company here in Fairfield, Iowa, where I'm based. It was a, um, a, a lab that was testing foods and grains for genetically engineered ingredients. They had started up in the mid-1990s and were testing um, products, particularly that were going to Europe and, and Japan because those two areas, people there had concerns about the safety of genetically engineered foods. So, um, and they, they, they were looking for someone to help them uh, write articles, publicity articles for trade magazines. And they saw that I had industry, I had experience writing about the grain industry. So I started, I worked for them and published articles in different food and agricultural magazines about their GMO testing service, as well as non-GMO certification. And they were, that was the first non-GMO certification program was called CERT ID. So, and the company was called Genetic ID. So I worked there and and published quite a few articles because this was back in 2000. Uh, the genetically engineered food issue was starting to become kind of a hot topic. It was becoming more on people's radar. And then at one point, my I was on a contract for them and my contract was cut back. So I had to look for something to do. I kept writing articles about genetic engineering for these trade magazines. And then I just got the idea to publish a newsletter about the non-GMO market because I saw this, there was a, a non-GMO market that was starting to emerge, particularly in Europe and Japan, as I mentioned, but also in the US. So that's what I did in 2001, I launched it and I've been publishing ever since. So it started out as an eight page, uh, one color newsletter, and now it's a 40 page full color magazine. So I've been publishing, this is our 20th year of publishing the organic and non-GMO report. So what was it that piqued your interest about GMOs specifically? Were, were you disturbed by what you were hearing? Were you just curious? I'd say I was concerned about what I was hearing. I was interested in food and I was getting interested in organic food. So uh, eating healthy food was a priority for me. But the technology of genetic engineering gave me some concerns well, what, what, why don't we talk about that? What, what, describe how it works. Describe the technology. How it works basically uh, is that scientists in a laboratory uh, will take genes from different species like viruses or bacteria or other plants, and uh, they'll insert them into the DNA of food plants like corn and soybeans, which are the most common genetically engineered plants. So they do this gene insertion process. And in talking to some scientists uh, who are familiar with this process, it is very, um, very inaccurate. It's a very, one scientist described the gene insertion process as a, as a shot in the dark because they don't know where the, the genes that they want inserted into the DNA, uh, where they will end up. What they've done is taken genes to make, for example, soybeans, resistant to Roundup herbicide. So they found genes from a bacteria that was thriving in a waste pond at a Monsanto Roundup uh, factory somewhere. And they found that this bacteria is basically eating up Roundup. <laughs> so they mm -hmm. extracted genes from it 
and inserted them into the DNA of soybeans in order to make the soybeans tolerate sprays of Roundup herbicide. So farmers can spray their fields with Roundup herbicide on, the soy, on their soybeans. Uh, it'll kill the weeds, but the plants have this tolerance or resistance to, to Roundup herbicide. So it, the soybean plants survive. And when did that happen? Well, in about 1996, I believe, was when the first genetically engineered Roundup-ready soybeans appeared on the market. And maybe shortly after that, there was insect-resistant corn. Uh, it's called, often called BT corn because it has the genes from a bacteria that is insect-resistant, that it will kill uh, certain insects like corn rootworm or other such pests. So they took genes from this bacteria Bacillus thuringiensis and inserted them into the DNA of corn plants. And it basically makes the entire corn plant a, uh, a pesticide. So a pest can chew on any part of the plant, the leaves, the roots, or, or the corn, and this, uh, the genes from this bacteria will kill, kill the insects, which also raises concerns about corn um, that's genetically engineered like this in our food supply. There are actually sweet corn varieties that are that have this BT, these BT genes in them and that are being sold and people are eating them. Well, so you described one particular variant of GMO. You mentioned soybeans that are that are you know resistant to Roundup. Uh, what are the other expressions or uses of GMO technology? 80%, I believe it's 80% of the genetically engineered uh, crops in the world are these Roundup Ready soybeans. The crops grown, 80% of the, of the GMO crops that are grown in the world are uh, Roundup resistant uh, soybeans, which is a huge percentage. And the other uh, majority of those are these insect resistant BT crops, which includes corn and cotton. There are also, uh, there's also a a virus-resistant papaya that's grown in Hawaii. Uh, there are virus-resistant zucchini and yellow squash that are grown, but very small amounts of those. And more recently, there's an apple, a non-browning apple that, is, uh, that has come to the market. I think a couple of varieties of those by a company in British Columbia. And also a potato, a couple of potato varieties developed by Simplot that also have this non-browning non -browning trait. So these, uh, that's kind of an overview of the, the genetic engineering, the genetically engineered crops that are on the market. There's also a salmon, a, um, a salmon variety that grows to market size twice as fast as conventional salmon that's, that's being sold, I believe in Canada right now. So the, this Aqua Advantage salmon, and I believe it's going to be starting to be sold in the U.S. this year, although some 60 uh, supermarket chains around the country, including major supermarket chains like Safeway and Kroger and others, have said they will not sell this, this GMO salmon. So as you mentioned, this started really in the late 90s, so it's a, a very new technology. Um, but in that short amount of time, how quickly did it spread? It spread pretty quickly, particularly the genetically engineered Roundup Ready soybeans, the BT corn. So within a few years, uh, Roundup Ready soybeans were the majority of soybeans that were grown in the U.S. And now 
it's more than 90% of the soybeans and also 90% of the corn is genetically engineered. And there's BT and there's also uh, Roundup Ready corn as well. Monsanto, uh, their business model, they wanted to, uh, to make as many <laughs> of, the, of the major field crops Roundup Ready as they could. So there's also Roundup Ready cotton and canola and sugar beets. Virtually all the sugar beets that are grown in the U.S. are Roundup Ready and also alfalfa. So it made the uh, adoption of genetically engineered crops has been rapid, and it's and like I said, it's a majority of of the major field crops are now genetically engineered. One of the reasons for it is that a lot of smaller seed companies that were providing the conventional varieties, the non-GMO varieties of corn and soybeans, had but were purchased by the bigger seed companies like Monsanto or Pioneer or Dow. And they were absorbed. So the major companies like Monsanto and Pioneer, they, they took some of these uh, conventional non-GMO varieties off the market. So in many cases, farmers had no choice but to buy the uh, genetically engineered varieties of corn and soybeans and cotton. Well, describe a agricultural system that would enable GMOs to spread so quickly. Well, it's the industrial agricultural system um, that has a heavy reliance on pesticides, chemical fertilizers, and also big, massive farms. In Iowa, a lot of the farms are thousands of acres. A lot of the small farms and mid-sized farms have disappeared. So farmers having to, to farm huge amounts of acres had to find ways to be more efficient. So they saw Roundup Ready soybeans as enabling them to be more efficient because they, they wouldn't have to worry about it. They could spray their fields with Roundup and would not have to worry about weeds that much. Or they could plant this BT corn. And the theory was that they could reduce the amount of insects, insecticides that they use. Uh, there's some de debate about that fact. So it was the, the whole industrial farming system and the Roundup Ready system and the BT the genetically engineered varieties of corn and soybeans just were another uh, extension, just another part of that industrial farming system that, that dominates agriculture in the Midwest. And I imagine that along with this concentration of corporate power, you also had parallel to that a lack of regulatory oversight. Oh, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, the U.S. government has three branches, the EPA, the USDA, and the Food and Drug Administration that have been regulating uh, genetically engineered plants and foods. But <laughs> the biotechnology companies, when they introduce these genetically engineered crops, they get minimal approval. I mean, they get minimal regulations from the government. There's no, they don't have to submit any safety data, any data showing that these, these crops are safe uh, for human consumption. That is totally voluntary. They can voluntarily submit any, any data they have or, or they don't have to. So the government does not regulate that. Uh, the USDA has to um, what's called deregulate these crops. The, the uh, biotech companies 
go, uh, apply to the USDA for approval, and the biotech companies will apply to grow field trials of these crops. And the USDA, there's there's been hundreds of field trials where they grow these GMO crops in the environment to see what their impacts are. And the USDA has never rejected an application for a field trial of these GMO crops. And and it, it goes back also to the revolving door between industry and, and the government. There have been executives from Monsanto that have worked in the government. There's one in particular that people point to, Michael Taylor, who worked at the FDA. And then, or initially, I think he was an attorney for a company that worked for Monsanto. And he went to work for the the FDA, and then he took a job with Monsanto, and then he went, went back to the FDA. So, so when that happens, like other branches of government and other uh, industries, there's an emphasis on as few regulations as possible. And now we see with these gene-edited um, plants that are starting to be developed, there's virtually no regulation of those whatsoever. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about that. What is the difference between GMO and gene edited? Well, actually, I think they're both they're, they're both should be considered uh, genetic engineering. Proponents of mm-hmm. gene editing say it's not gene editing because they're not taking genes, you know, from other species or other plants or animals and and inserting them into the DNA. That they're just they're just making little edits to existing genes to get a certain effect, like to to silence the the browning uh, ability of an apple, in the case of of uh, the Arctic GMO apple. So they're yeah they're taking out genes, they're editing genes, like they say, or cutting them out or removing them uh, without inserting new genes, but. There have been studies that have come out that show that gene editing creates unintended consequences that similar to genetic engineering, when when genes are inserted into the DNA, uh, they disrupt the functioning of other genes. It's, it's, a, it's a genetic network that's um, all linked together. And when you manipulate one part, it's going to affect everything. Is that what's known as is off-target yeah, effects? Yeah, off-target effects. Yeah, that's what that's what they call the unintended consequences. Well, describe some of those off-target effects. Well, there's a, an example of a a soybean that was developed by I think it was by Pioneer. They wanted to create a, a more high a higher protein soybean, so they took some genes from a Brazil nut and inserted them into the DNA of soybeans uh, to increase the the protein. And so fortunately, uh, they did some testing. They sent it to a lab and and they found that if people ate the soybean, people who had allergies to Brazil nuts and they ate the soybean, that it would that they would it would trigger an allergic reaction. There was a corn variety that was developed called Starlink back in the early 2000s. And this this corn was supposed to be for feed use only, but it's hard to to keep these genetically engineered plants from cross-pollinating with other plants. Well, it turned out that this corn got into into food products, lots of food products. 
like tortilla chips and cereals. And it caused a $300 million food recall. And people who ate these food products had allergic reactions. Some people reported when they ate tortilla chips that had starling corn in it. They, some people, a few people went into anaphylactic shock because of the uh, allergic reaction. So there's examples like that. And fortunately, uh, there, there have been studies that have shown some negative impacts, particularly with, well, this starling corn, well, also BT corn. Uh, they found that when monarch butterflies ate the leaves of this BT corn, it, it was lethal. It killed them. So it could have negative impacts on, on beneficial insects that the scientists, they know with the genetically engineered crops, they kind of create them in a laboratory. They know what they're doing in a laboratory, but when they're put into a complex ecosystem or they get into the food supply, they really don't know what the, what the impacts are going to be. Well, how prevalent are these products in our food supply? I mean, you go into it. You go into a typical grocery store. You know, you're not looking at labels. How likely are you to pick up something that contains genetically modified crops? There's estimates as much as eighty to ninety percent of the processed foods in supermarkets have ingredients from genetically engineered corn and soybeans. You read labels; these ingredients are very widespread. There's corn oil or soybean oil or soy protein. Uh, corn flour, corn starch, soy lecithin. There's a whole list of ingredients that are produced from, are also cotton, cottonseed oil is used in a lot of products. So the majority of the processed foods and supermarkets contain ingredients from genetically engineered crops. And that's why, that's what led consumer advocates to, to lobby for labeling of genetically engineered foods because people were were in the dark about the presence of these of these GMOs in food products and the biotech industry just fought tooth and nail they fought against efforts to make the fact that their GMOs were in food products transparent to consumers and what was their argument for not labeling products that contain GMOs well, one of them was, interestingly, one of them was that, oh, if they label them, it'd be like a skull and crossbones, that it would scare off consumers. Well, as it turned out, uh, a few years ago, back in, I think it was around 2016, some major food companies, including General Mills, Campbell's, ConAgra, and um, a few others, even Kellogg's, I believe, said that they were going to label their food products that had genetically engineered ingredients. So they started putting labels on. General Mills, I remember going to a supermarket in Iowa and picking up products made from General Mills and they said made with genetic engineering or you know something like that. There were the language they were trying to comply with a, a labeling law that had been passed in Vermont that year. And so they had language right on the box, like, like right on a box of cereal made with genetic engineering. And I called these companies, uh, Mars Candy was another one, like um, Mars Candy Bars or M&Ms, packages of M&Ms had GMOs labels on them. 
I, I call these companies to see if there had been any impact on sales of their products with these labels. And they all said, no, there had been no impact. So this idea of a skull and crossbones scaring off people turned out to be untrue. What's the data on consumer demand for GMO products or non-GMO products? Well, there are there have been some different surveys. The Pew Research Center came out with results of a survey a few months ago that, that show that about 50%, 50% of the people they surveyed, which were just you know regular consumers, are concerned about the health effects of genetically engineered foods. Mm-hmm. And there are surveys by like the Hartman Group that show that as many as 40% of consumers are looking for non-GMO products. They're, they're trying to avoid, avoid GMO products. Of course, the, the people that are eating organic are the ones that are really trying to avoid genetically engineered foods. In fact, they, um, that is one of the primary reasons that, that they're buying organic is to avoid GMOs. Uh, Avoiding pesticides is usually is always the number one reason why people um, eat organic, but avoiding GMOs is high on the list as well. So, and there's a there's a big demand. I, one indication of the the demand for non-GMO foods is the fact that um, the non-GMO project, which is the leading uh, certifier of foods of non-GMO foods, they verify that foods are non-GMO. There are over 100,000 products now that that are non-GMO project verified. They have this little butterfly logo that has become very visible in, in food stores. And the fact that major food companies are getting their products labeled non-GMO. Uh, Dan, and, Dan and yogurt products, are are non-GMO. Some General Mills food products are non-GMO. I just read where Skippy peanut butter has has Mm -hmm. one of their products is non-GMO project verified. Gerber baby from some Gerber baby foods. Uh, Triscuits. Triscuits have a non-GMO project logo. Frito-Lay, some Frito-Lay corn chips are non-GMO project verified. So these big companies see that consumers are wanting these non-GMO foods because they want to avoid eating genetically engineered foods, GMO foods. We'll talk about the non-GMO project. Who is behind that group? What authority do they have? What's their process? Um, I'm interested in hearing more about that. The non-GMO project was launched around 2000, 2007, and it was started by organic food companies who were who were concerned about the incursion of GMOs into organic foods. So companies like Nature's Path Foods, Lundberg Family Farms, Eden Foods, uh, also United Natural Foods, um, the largest distributor of natural foods. So they got together. Uh, they worked with an expert on GMO testing and develop a standard uh, for GMO avoidance. And the standard has certain requirements for segregation, for traceability, and for testing, for GMO testing. And they have certain thresholds for the amount of GMO material that can be in a food, like 0.9%, which 
which is kind of a, a global standard. It's this it's, it's the standard for GMO labeling in in Europe. So it was started uh, back in 2007, and they took a couple of years to develop this standard. It was developed with input from members of the natural and organic food industries. Um, so there was a lot of industry input on it, and, a, and it was a very thorough process. So it's a pretty, I would say, a pretty thorough standard, strict standard. So about 2009, some companies started to getting started getting their products verified, and it's just kind of snowballed after that. And I would say around 2012 or 2013, when the first GMO labeling initiatives were launched, there was a, a ballot initiative in California to label genetically engineered foods. It was put on the ballot to um, for the consumers to vote on that November. But that, that ballot initiative really raised awareness of this whole genetically engineered food issue um, nationwide. Around that same time, it accelerated the demand for non-GMO foods. So non the non-GMO project is the leading non-GMO certification program. It, it differs from organic in that organic is a, you know, it's a national standard. It's under the USDA, the national program, national organic program. While the non-GMO project is a private initiative, there are some people who, who say there's a need for a national non-GMO standard that should be under, under the USDA, like the organic standard, but nothing like that has happened. So the non-GMO project has become almost the de facto non-GMO standard for, for, for the U.S., how does the U.S. stack up to other countries in how it regulates not just labeling, but scientific studies, et cetera? Well, um, I think the U.S. the U.S. is probably at the bottom of the list. Other countries, particularly Europe and uh, Japan, are very have been very strict about the regulation of genetically engineered foods. Um, and also other many other countries there before the US the US finally implemented a uh, GMO labeling law there were 64 other countries that had mandatory GMO labeling all the European Union countries in Japan Brazil India uh, Russia I think China was on the list so it's been very the US is lagged behind because probably because the industry is is so as well as based in the U.S., uh, the Monsanto uh, or now Bayer has a strong presence in the U.S. and Pioneer, which which recently merged with Dow, is now Dow Dow Dupont. So they're mainly in the U.S. So they've had sway over the government to to ensure that there's as few regulations as possible on on genetic engineering. I was re recently listening to an NPR podcast and a guest was on to talk broadly about conspiracy theories as part of American life. And at one point, the claim that GMOs are harmful to human health was thrown into the conspiracy theory bucket. What, what's, your, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I, how do you feel 
about the way that mainstream media outlets report on not just food, but GMOs specifically. It seems to be very much in the pro camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say so. I mean, they they go as far as to repeat biotech industry talking points like, you know, GMOs are going to help to feed the world and uh, they're reducing pesticide use and they're producing more nutritious foods, which is totally untrue. <laughs> because, as I mentioned, the main traits, main GMO traits are herbicide tolerance and um, insect resistance. So um, yeah, the main mainstream media has um, kind of gone along with the, the biotech industry line, I would say. Although it's interesting with the concerns that have been raised recent in the past couple of years about glyphosate herbicide, the mainstream media has been has been covering that issue a lot and raising raising concerns about um, about glyphosate, which is the, the primary ingredient in Roundup herbicide. So yeah, there's there hasn't been much reporting on negative impacts of of GMOs. There there have been studies. Uh, there's a book uh, called GMO Myths and Truths that has quite a few. I mean, it's several hundred studies that have shown negative impacts of of GMOs and um, the associated pesticides and herbicides that are used with them. Um, but you won't see those reported in the mainstream media very much. And, and why is that? Because of entrenched interests, because of corruption? How do, how do you account for that blind spot in media coverage? Because I see it too. Yeah, entrenched interests. There was a story about a couple of Fox television reporters in Florida. Uh, it was a married couple. I think their last name was Wilson. And they were um, they were planning to do a whole story, kind of a undercover or investigative report on Monsanto's RBST, the bovine growth hormone, the genetically engineered growth hormone, and um, talking to scientists and, and um, showing negative impacts of it. But Monsanto got wind of it and they, they came down so heavy on the TV station that they, the TV station pulled the plug on the story. They didn't go, they didn't go ahead with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I know um, an advocate for, um, he's an attorney who had actually filed a lawsuit against the USDA over their GMO labeling policy that was so weak. And he was interviewed extensively by, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal, but they did not <laughs> did not publish a story about him. So it's kept it's been kept out of the mainstream media for some reason. I mean, the way it's reported, as I see it, is that it is established science that GMOs are safe. Yeah. Is that true? And what scientific studies do you point people to? Well, there have been some studies that have been done in Europe. Um, there was a, um, a scientist, a French scientist, Giles Serolini, who published a paper that really riled the, uh, the biotech industry a few years ago, who um, did a long-term feeding study, a two-year feeding study with rats, feeding them... Um, is BT corn and the rats develop tumors. 
And this study was published in a journal, peer-reviewed journal, and there was such an outcry about it that the uh, the journal was forced to retract the study, even though the studies, you know, the, the scientists did everything right to, to publish this study. Uh, so there's intimidation. They retracted it. They retracted it. And he got it published in another, in another journal. Yeah. And he, the, the retraction of his study did not even meet the, the standards for retraction of a, of a paper in their journal. They, they had to come up with other criteria in order to publish, to, to retract his study. So, um, yeah, and there's, there's intimidation factor uh, that uh, studies like this are not published very much. There's, it's hard to get funding for this type of research, risk assessment. The agricultural schools in the U.S. would not touch any type of this research, particularly when they have buildings named after Monsanto or endowed chairs of soybean breeding named after Monsanto, like Iowa State University um, does, or the University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard for scientists to get any funding to do this type of of research. Hard, hard to get funding, but also you're deterred because you may face a PR campaign smearing your reputation as a exactly. scientist. And, and that happens. Yeah, you, you get attacked. Yeah. There, were, <laughs> there was a scientist, I believe, at the University of Indiana who published a study showing this genetically engineered BT corn uh, killed these was lethal to these aquatic insects called caddisflies. And these uh, caddisflies serve as a food source for, for some aquatic animals like fish or something. So if you, you know, again, if you take, take the caddisflies out of the ecosystem, it, it just removes the balance of the ecosystem. So when the scientist published a study, she said she, she would go to conferences and things and and she would get people coming up to her and just criticizing her for publishing such research and you know she got nasty comments from people and emails and you know and that happens a lot with with any study that gets published that, that shows any type of negative impact of genetic engineering i see this on websites such as Biofortified or the Genetic Literacy Project, which promote GMOs. Mm-hmm. They just rip these, these studies to pieces. And so the scientists become intimidated. They, you know, they don't, why, you know, they think, why should I do this type of research if I'm going to get attacked like this? And, and to those two organizations you mentioned are highly prioritized by Google, for example, in their search results which can give them sort of an air of legitimacy and authority. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly the Gen- genetic literacy project. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe how they're getting such um, when I go to Google news and see articles about GMOs or non GMO, they're, they're usually there and they're, you know, they're attack dogs basically uh, attacking organics and, Sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture. They particularly go for after organics, and and they've they've. I wrote an article. They've engaged in unethical journalism. They've they've published 
the names of people, the the phone numbers of people on their website, that people that they that they attack, like like leaders of of nonprofit groups, advocacy consumer advocacy groups, and and things like that, and they they change headlines of of articles uh, that are published on their website. They manipulate the uh, the headlines. Without and um, even a journalist who who was very pro GMO called him out for that. Hmm. Um, well, speaking of speaking of journalists, I mean, um, a, a previous guest on this podcast, Carrie Gillum. You Google her name, and a story the first story to come up on the search results is from the Genetic Literacy Project talking about she's an industry shill for big organic. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah. Carrie knows about the intimidation and and uh yeah, the attacks from genetic literacy and from Monsanto when she was at Reuters. Yeah, she probably told you the stories that mm-hmm. you know, her editor had to take her off the covering GMOs because Reuters was getting so much pressure from the powers that be, the Monsantos or whoever. Yeah, so and they they regularly regularly attack her um and her book she published a book uh, a couple of years ago and they they attacked that and <laughs> so yeah a lot of that goes on and, and they're threatened they're, they're threatened they're i think it's their their scientific paradigm that this technology is 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 risky and um it's not sound science threatens their paradigm so they they respond by attacking which can be really confusing for your average consumer. Yeah, yeah, it can be. And that's yeah. that's sort of the point. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's interesting cuz I've been covering this issue for 20 years and you know, I've seen the claims that have been made about genetically engineered foods over the years that oh, we're going to reduce pesticide use, we're going to feed the world, we're going to create more nutritious foods, we're going to feed the hungry, you know, all this and and saying oh it's a very precise technology well now they're making the same claims about gene editing and gene edited foods and they're saying oh this is a this is a precise technology meaning that the old genetic engineering wasn't precise which 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 it isn't mm-hmm. and then, well the new one the gene editing isn't precise either so it's just interesting to see these these same claims that have been made about genetic engineering have been kind of regurgitated to to promote gene editing. Do you, do you believe that gene edited or genetically modified crops are inherently flawed, or or do you see some beneficial application? I see some inherent problems with the science behind it. This the gene insertion process. I, I interviewed a, a scientist, an ecological biologist at the University of Michigan a few years ago. His name is John Vandermeer. And we were talking about genetic engineering. And and he said something really interesting that, that kind of stuck with me. He said that genetic engineering is based on dramatically incomplete knowledge of the genome, that the scientists that are doing these, using this technology, don't have a complete understanding of the genome. So they don't have a complete understanding of what they're doing. That's that raises major flags for me. If some gene edited product was 
regulated, that there was extensive safety testing done that showed that it was that it was safe, then yeah, I may, you know, I may say, well, that's, you know, that's fine. But that's not being done. It's not going to be done. You know, gene editing, as I mentioned earlier, is not even going to be regulated. Well, so what are your fears? I mean, we, we've, we've talked a little bit about that, but I really would love for you to outline the real the potential threats that these technologies pose to human health, to biodiversity. They could create new toxins and allergens that get into the food supply. I mean, we don't know. The problem is we don't know what what these foods are doing because there's no there's no market uh, follow up on them when they're when they get into the food supply. So they could people could be getting sick from them or causing health problems, but we don't know because nobody's looking for it. Nobody's checking. And like with cigarette smoking, it could, how many years, you know, how long did it take before science recognized that cigarette smoking was dangerous? So I think the same could be said for genetically engineered foods. I mean, you may not, you may not die immediately from eating a uh, BT corn, a cob of BT corn, but if you eat it over a long period, what we don't know what that's going to do. And, and because BT is a toxin, then it should be studied and it should be studied long-term like the scientists in France, uh, Seralini did. Um, as far as biodiversity, the, the studies showing the, the harm to the aquatic insects, that raises, raises alarms. And there's also been studies that have shown that the BT corn harms of soil fungi, mm -hmm. you know, with, and with soil health being such a increasingly important, recognized as increasingly important in agriculture, having negative impacts on soil organisms is, is not what we want. And the same with, well, with, with the Roundup Ready soybeans and the use of glyphosate. There's a, a scientist, Robert Kramer, who was with the University of Missouri, who's done me, uh, several studies that have looked, that have found that negative impacts of, of the GMO soy and the Roundup on soil microorganisms. So there's, you know, a lot of potential there for, for harm and, and there needs to be more regulation of it of this technology because it's it's a powerful technology genetic engineering gene editing they're manipulating the dna which is you know one of the fundamental molecules of life and when you do that it can create unintended consequences off-target effects so the technology really needs to be regulated better and there needs to be safety testing done on foods that are being these foods that are being released into the food supply. You know, e even if there were no negative environmental externalities associated with GMOs, it seems clear to me that th they're at the very least being used as a means of shoring up near total corporate domination of agriculture. To me, they're the perfect vehicle for control, right? I mean, talk about seeds and patented seeds and how that has affected our food supply and our farmers. Yeah, that's that's a whole whole nother topic. The the patenting of seeds, the patenting of life. There have been, you know, farmers that have been dragged to court for 
patent infringement of Monsanto's GMO soybeans. Yeah, and the corporate control over seed. Farmers that grow these uh, GMO seeds without paying a licensing fee and, and prosecution of those. And yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of people think that seeds are, are for the public good or for the, you know, should be common property. You know, it's a basic, basic to our food supply. The basis of our food supply is seeds and that they should be, um, I mean, you have seed companies that obviously have to sell, sell seeds, but to have patents on them, uh, it just seems draconian. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and if, if we're planting GMO seeds, that means we're not planting, you know, heirloom seeds that have been developed over generations to thrive in particular climates or areas. Right. Um, talk about the sort of loss of variety and diversity among oh, yeah. kind of the, the, the seed um, yeah. bank. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, particularly corn, corn cross-pollinates. And so these GMO, GMOs, the genes can be passed on to organic, non-GMO heirloom corn varieties. There's an example of a, a farm here in Iowa. Um, a woman named Laura Krause has a farm in, in Iowa. She grows this, uh, this corn variety that's been grown on this farm for over a hundred years. I forget exactly what, what the corn variety was, but it won some awards at, the, at this corn competition in, um, in the 1800s and she bought this farm and she continued growing this heirloom corn. And she had neighbors that are growing GMO corn and sure enough, her corn got cross-pollinated and contaminated by by the GMO corn. So you see that those kind of things happening. Um, because there's so <laughs> because there's so much GMO corn that's grown in the US, it's virtually impossible to get to get corn that has zero GMO contamination in it. Even organic seed companies can only can only guarantee a certain threshold like two zero two zero two point two 0.25% or Point one percent or something like that. So yeah, it's a real threat to these heirloom varieties. There was a, and also indigenous varieties uh, in Iowa and Tama, Iowa. Tama um, is the home of the Meskwaki uh, tribe. They mm -hmm. they actually own their own land. Uh, it's about it's just west of Cedar Rapids in Iowa, and they they have their own varieties that they've had for hundreds of years. Tama flint corn is what it's called and they're growing that, but they're concerned that it's gonna be contaminated by, uh, by GMO corn. And it reduces the value. I mean, for organic farmers, when, when they grow organic corn and it's contaminated by GMO corn and they take it to their buyer and the buyer tests it for GMOs and they find GMOs in it and it's rejected. So the, the organic farmer loses his premium. He did all that work. And now he can't sell his, his uh, corn as organic because it's got GMOs in it. So it's, it's a threat and it's hurting organic farmers. I've talked to many organic farmers who've had that, who've had that very thing happen. Well, what's being done to combat that and what could be done in the future? 
I mean, the, the, unfortunately, it's it, the burden is on the organic farmers who have to take measures to um, prevent cross-pollination. So they have to plant their corn earlier than their conventional neighbors, their GMO neighbors, so that they're planted earlier or later. It's often later, I think, so that their corn does not pollinate at the same time that the, mm. their neighbor's corn does, or they have to segregate their fields um, with some type of buffer strip. But that is really hard because organic farms tend to be small and they're often surrounded by huge GMO farms. So there are challenges. Um, there one, a, a company, there's a seed company in Iowa, Blue River, hybrid, Blue River Organic Seed that sells corn seed that has a trait that prevents cross-pollination. There's a trait that was that's in popcorn that that allows that disallows pollen from GMO corn from cross pollinating with it. So they've developed uh, Blue Rivers developed corn varieties that have this trait. So that's something else they can do. As far as legal remedies, there are right now there are no legal remedies for farmers who've lost their premiums to uh, because of the contamination problem. So the organic farmers just have to do what they can to prevent contamination from happening. They can talk to their neighbors, see if their neighbors will, you know, plant soybeans next to their, to their organic corn or plant a different time. Or, and, and that can be hard, too, because there can be some animosity from, um, by conventional farmers to, to organic farmers. So it's a real challenge that keeping um, organic corn or even non-GMO corn pure of GMOs can be a real challenge. Well, let's shift uh, the conversation a little bit to to organics. What what is the current climate, in particularly in the U.S. but abroad as well? Is, is the organic movement gaining ground? Is it falling behind? I mean, the current presidential administration talks a lot about helping farmers, but what's the reality? Yeah, well, I'd say the current administration is kind of hostile to organic farming. I mean, the the USDA Secretary Purdue was quoted a few a few months ago and speaking to a bunch of farmers saying something to the effect that, oh, well, small farmers, you might as well, you know, go big or get out, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's kind of the attitude. And the USDA has not not been helpful. The the organic community has tried to pass animal welfare standards into the, you know, add them to the organic standards. The USDA has refused to do that. Uh, There's now a lawsuit over that. Um, but despite the USDA's um, hostility to the organic com- or the organic industry, organic continues to grow. And particularly now during the pandemic, organic, um, I just read a statistic that sales of organic foods have increased 25% in the past three months since the, um, the pandemic first hit. So more people are buying organic now. And in my work as a journalist writing articles about organic grain industry and organic feed, and, and I've, I, I interviewed organic grain suppliers, and they're all, they're all saying that business is booming, that one grain supplier said his business is up 30%. And that, that was common all over the country. And the same, I just interviewed suppliers of organic feed, and they're saying the same thing. 
that business is booming. They're getting a COVID bump, as they say. Some of them supply to the, the backyard chicken farmers. Evidently, there's 10 million households in the U.S. that have chickens that <laughs> have chickens in their backyard, and more people want to do that because they want to become self-reliant with food in the um, in the wake of this pandemic. So more people are growing gardens. I talked to uh, Tom Stearns at High Mowing Seeds. Uh, which is one of the leading organic seed companies. And he said that their online sales were up 300% at one point. Hmm. So the organic industry seems to be doing pretty well, I would say right now during this pandemic. Um, Of course, as the economy continues to go south and that, that could change, people could cut back on their purchases of organic because organic costs more. But it, it could be that people are just prioritizing their health over their cheap food choices and, and buying organic because to build immunity because they think organic is healthier and, and studies have shown that some organic uh, foods are healthier. So people see that. So they see that as a way to build immunity to help them prevent illness, prevent coronavirus. Yeah, I used to have a friend in um, college. He used to make fun of me for buying organic. And he would say, a carrot is a carrot is a carrot. And that's not true, is it? No. There's a difference no. between organic and, and industrial produce when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, yeah. There are, and there have been studies that have shown that organic produce has more antioxidants. And, and it makes sense because, as I heard one scientist explain, like, Conventional produce, because it's doused with, you know, it's fertil- chemical fertilizers and pesticides, that the those conventional plants, they don't have to activate their defense mechanisms to ward off disease pests. Mm-hmm. Um, that because the pesticides will do that or whatever they get. Whereas the organic produce has to be tough. <laughs> so they activate their plant um defense mechanisms to ward off pests and disease. And and this one scientist felt that because of that, that the organic plants produce more antioxidants. Yeah, I mean, there've been studies on human longevity that that have shown that stressors can lead to longer life and healthier humans. You know, whether that's, that's cold exposure or whatever. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, there was a columnist in the the Guardian, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was talking about the future of food is not more agriculture. The future of food is labs. You know, it's vats of food-like substance, and you know, it's all about technology. And we're going to have you know hydroponic facilities, you know, in in cities across the country and elsewhere. And that's going to be the future because, you know, his argument being that agriculture as it's currently practiced is damaging to the environment. It's contributing to climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you, what role does technology play in the future of agriculture and food? And 
how much of that is just sort of hype being promoted by technology companies that stand to gain? I think I think a lot of it's probably hype. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I've heard about lab-grown meats and things like that, and uh, this whole field of synthetic biology. The the Impossible Burger is an example of that, mm-hmm. and it's it's popular um, because it, it's like a meat a meat product. It's like looks like a real hamburger, but. Uh, yeah, and hydroponics. Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's indoor gardens, vertical gardens in in uh, major cities now growing hydroponic produce. So that could have a role to play. But I think it's I I see a lot of um, positive. Uh, I see this regenerative agriculture trend as being really positive and. Mm-hmm. And that is based on soil and soil health. There's a sign at the Rodale Institute that says healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people. And that kind of says it all. That And healthy soil, you know, soil health can help to um, mitigate climate change, take carbon out of the air. And there have been studies that have, that have shown this in organic production. There was a study that was done at... Um, I believe at Boston University and the Organic Center that found that organic soils store carbon, a lot more carbon than conventional soils. And uh, I think there have been other other studies that have shown this. So I think the future is regenerative ag. There there may be some role for technology like that, particularly if it's if it's proven to be safe and it's regulated. Mm-hmm. But I think agriculture is the future of agriculture is is in regenerative agriculture with fewer and fewer inputs until there's no no chemicals, no ag chemicals at all. Well, Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, are there any parting words that you'd like to share with us? What 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 do you see in the future? Well, I'm encouraged. Yeah, I'm encouraged by the growth of, of organic. I think it'll continue to grow because it's what people want. Um, more and more people want foods without without pesticides. I think at some point in the future, if it's not it's not too distant future, um, people are going to look back around this time and be shocked that the chemicals, the pesticides, the poisons were used to produce food. So I think that's the future. I think the future is regener in regenerative agriculture with its focus on soil health and that that is going to go a long way towards eliminating the pesticides so i'm encouraged by the future it's um the big companies still wield a lot of power that the the bears and the the dow duponts and so they're not going to go easily but um i think they they need to become part of the regenerative and organic trends. Otherwise they're gonna be left on the dust, the dust heap of history. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you. You're welcome, Ben, it was great. There you have it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. 
Also find us on AnchorsUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.